The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Say you're a professional landscaper. You're not just tough, you're professional grade. And so are your tools. Because you got best-in-class Echo X-Series products. You got a perfect balance of power, weight, and performance from a professional-grade 56-volt battery system. Max-out battery tech that gives 100% power till a 0% charge. Echo X-Series means best-in-class tools for best-in-class pros. So when we say Echo is professional-grade, we mean it. Echo. Power on and on. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation. Because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of the magazine, and this is the second of our November 2011 editions. Don't forget, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Our website is historyextra.com and you can follow us at twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com slash historyextra. Coming up, we have... No one really understands the Arctic convoys properly apart from those who took part in them. That was Quentin Colville on the World War II Arctic convoys. The solutions that we're adopting today, like managed retreat of seawalls, is not new. It's actually a very natural response to environmental change. And it shows that we're working with nature rather than fighting against nature. That was Stephen Rippon on the historical landscape of Essex. So, firstly, I've been talking to Quentin Colville, Curator of Naval History at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. He has been working on a new exhibition on the Second World War Arctic convoys. I went up to the museum to find out more. 
What's the background to the Arctic Convoy story? We're talking about the Second World War. Um, more specifically, we're talking about the period 1941 to 1945, uh, during which uh, the the Russian uh, offensive against Germany was supplied with about 4 million tonnes of war material uh, through ships that took part in these convoys uh, from Britain uh, to uh, places like Murmansk and Archangel on the north, northern coast of Russia. Okay, so quite a long period of time that's, that we're talking about here. We, what sort of numbers of, of ships are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of ships. Um, and we're talking about a, a, an enormous effort, not simply by the Royal Navy, but also by the Merchant Marine. Um, this is it's a question of scale, but it's also a question of uh, the sheer difficulty of the operations, n- not just in terms of the enemy and what they faced in terms of enemy action, but the elements and the weather um, and the general logistics logistical difficulties that were involved. Okay, so the ships left from Britain, is that right? Where, where did they leave from generally? They often left from uh, Liverpool or the Clyde or Loch U. Uh, they sometimes rendezvoused in Iceland. Um, and the voyage itself took between 10 and 15 days uh, to get to Murmansk or Ar- Archangel, depending on which route they took. Uh, but essentially that meant uh, heading up into the Arctic Ocean, uh, going up round uh, the northern coast of, of Norway, far away, as far from the coastline as possible, uh, because of course that was occupied by German forces, and then down uh, to Russian territory to unload their, uh, their cargoes. Even to uh, an uneducated sort like myself, that sounds like a reasonably perilous journey. Um, it was extraordinarily perilous. Um, these are very difficult seas. Um, there, were m- there were mountainous waves much of the time. Uh, there are accounts that we have um, of the impact of, of the water actually stripping armour plate from the turrets of a cruiser. Uh, you can imagine the force required to do that. Um, it's also a question of ice and cold um, that we have um, in the museum all also accounts from people who describe spray uh, turning to ice as it flew through the air and rattling against the the upper works of of the ships. And you also had ice building up on all the decks, all the machinery, seizing up all the intricate bits of engineering and potentially actually threatening ships with capsizing because of the weight of hundreds of tons of ice uh, stuck to their upper works. And this is even before you've got uh, uh, the perils of of the U-boats, of air attack by German forces and also German capital ships that were often um, lodged in the Norwegian fjords and threatened the British and threatened these convoys. So you're quite right, it's a um, a context of extraordinary peril um, and the casualties and losses reflect that. Um, you, you mentioned British. It wasn't just the British who were involved in this, so were they, they were other nationalities who were sending ships on these convoys. Quite right, yes. Uh, and the naval effort itself was predominantly British, uh, but the merchant marine effort was, was international, as you rightly say. There were, there were large numbers of Norwegian vessels. Uh, by the end of the war, there was, I, I expect, a preponderance of American tonnage too. Uh, so we are talking about a, a, um, not just vessels, but a, a multinational, multinational crew as well. Mm. What about the Canadians? Were they involved? Yes, they were, yes. Yeah, Royal Canadian Navy too, yes. So, uh, and some, uh, some American surface units as well. So quite a big multinational effort of these ships heading across. What, what were the, the convoys like? How many ships in a convoy are we talking generally? Probably in, in the 30s, right. gen, generally speaking. They're, 
they're, they're, they're not the largest, but re- relatively large, hmm. um, and would be defended by as many escorts as possible. Um, and early in the war, that wasn't very many. Um, and by the end of the war, you had situations often where one merchantman and one escort vessel, uh, there was one for each. So uh, the, the, the sophistication and the, the, and the level um, of Royal Naval and other navies' interaction increased over the war. Okay. Um, how, uh, so how did their experience compare to the convoys in the other sea, in the Atlantic? Presumably the same idea was happening, but were there particular problems other than the, the conditions that, that they were facing? I think if you're probably in, in a rough sea in the, in the middle of the Atlantic, um, then the, the realities of life on board a convoy were relatively similar. Um, if you can just imagine the, the chaos below, below decks uh, with water swilling around on, uh, on the mess decks, with, with sailors having to sleep in their sodden clothes and probably eating cold food for, for weeks on end, those are realities that would have been shared by uh, convoys in the in the Atlantic um, and convoys in the Arctic. Um, But in the Arctic, you have to add uh, an even greater threat of cold. Um, The the simple reality that um, these were conditions of extraordinary um, peril in terms of the elements. Um, and the survivability, for instance, if, you, if your ship did go down, uh, you really had minutes uh, in, in water that very rarely rose above four degrees C in, in, in temperature. It, so if you were sunk, presumably you were dead. Did, did people survive? People did survive, yes. Um, and and um, the Navy also had, um, well, there, there were also armed merchant vessels detailed to pick up survivors. Um, and they had special survivability technologies built into them, but they were by, by no means um, immune from destruction themselves. And those vessels often did uh, pick up survivors. And so also did the, the naval escort vessels, the, the sloops, the, uh, the, the corvettes, the destroyers that accompanied these, uh, these convoys. So it wasn't a sentence of death, but uh, you needed to be out of the water extremely fast. Um, presumably the, the German shipping that was hunting these convoys faced, well, obviously faced the same weather conditions. Yes. Um, did that mean that there was less of, a, less of an enemy threat to the convoys than, say, in the Atlantic, or did actually the German shipping focus on, on, the, on, the, on these convoys just as much? In, in, in some ways, it, it was less a question of German shipping, um, which often was kept bottled up um, along the Norwegian coastline than U-boats, um, and also aerial attack. Um, and what you did have in the context of the, um, of the Arctic convoys were uh, a situation where occupied Norway gave space for German airfields, which could cover huge distances out into the Arctic Ocean, uh, which threatened British convoys and, and international convoys throughout the war. To some extent, um, convoys that, uh, that took place during the winter, the winter months of complete darkness, uh, were clearly uh, protected to, to, from aerial assault, uh, but they weren't immune from other threats. Hmm. What sort of things were they taking over to, to Russia? Then, what, what were the products involved? It's, it's a huge range of, 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 of goods and, and, and manufactured objects and, and raw materials, uh, right the way f- through from um, aircraft. Uh, probably about five thousand of those during the course of the war. Uh, in, in fact, more, perhaps seven and a half thousand tanks, five thousand of those, petrol, uh, rubber, 
ammunition, maybe half a billion projectiles of one sort or another. Things like radio sets, um, boots, <laughs> pieces of, yeah, uh, uh, th- things that you might think were less essential to the war effort, but, but were in fact instrumental. Things like trucks. Uh, there were tens of thousands of trucks delivered to the Russian war effort uh, through, by, by these means. And for the Germans, um, this was an enormous problem. Um, for every ship uh, filled with these cargoes uh, contained things that they would ultimately have to face on Russian battlefields if they didn't sink them in the, in the Arctic Ocean. Far simpler to sink a mer- merchant ship uh, than to face uh, the myriad contents of its hold um, on, on a battlefield. Hmm. So how important was the Arctic convoy story to the conclusion of the war? Was it, is it a, a very big aspect to it? it, it it's one that's been uh, um, chewed over a great deal and as it has in some ways been obscured by ideology, by politics, by international relations. Um, even during the war itself, the alliance between uh, the, the Allies and, and, and Russia was often uneasy, fractious, uh, filled with suspicion and often personality clashes. And that made it difficult even at the time to, to to look at the benefits, the actual outcome of, of this enormous effort. Um, and after the war, in the context of uh, the Cold War, um, the, the contribution made by the Allies um, and by the, by the merchant marine was also to some extent obscured. But I, I don't think we can uh, believe otherwise than that uh, this quantity of war material was enormously important um, and it may as I was saying be more the the, the simpler items the the, um, the radios the, um, the 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 petrol the thousands of tons of chemicals um, that that were, were were vital did the the individual Russian and allied Mariners get on okay. Do we have any evidence of, of, of interaction they had? Uh, we have uh, we have a, a good deal of evidence of of the encounters that Allied uh, service personnel had uh, with their Russian uh, colleagues when they kept, when they reached places like Archangel or Murmansk. Um, often they were difficult and strained. Um, there was a good deal of mutual suspicion and misunderstanding. Uh, uh, the Allies did not necessarily comprehend um, the appalling conditions within which Soviet um, service personnel and civilians lived during that period um, and were, for instance, shocked by the conditions um, in hospitals um, to which British and other nationality servicemen were were treated by the Russians. They they thought them um, extraordinarily basic. and so there were, there were many areas in which uh, this was a difficult relationship, but we can also see ones of, of friendship too. And the exhibition has a, um, a, a, a watercolour showing um, a, a Russian couple entertaining uh, British sailors in their, in their homes. So there, there were clearly moments where personality overcame ideology. Let's talk about the exhibition. Clearly, that's, that's, that's why we're here. Um, we're in the, in, in the beautiful confines of, of the National Maritime Museum here in Greenwich. 
why here would you have a, an exhibition on the Arctic convoys? Well, I think uh, this, this, this museum as a, as a, as a home and, and heartland for our naval history, um, that in many ways the, uh, the collections of the uh, National Maritime Museum uh, are unequaled in terms of, uh, of our maritime and naval past. Um, but this is also an, ext- an extremely important moment for us to, uh, to reflect on and recognise the contribution of the Arctic convoy because it's a story that um, is perhaps flickeringly understood and not always remembered. Um, there is a, a memorial, uh, there's, there's an anniversary of sorts and that it's 70 years since the first of these convoys began. Uh, but I think we're motivated by the sense that our collections can bring the story to life um, and the experiences um, of these sailors and, and merchant mariners too. It's also timely as well, isn't it, in the sense that it's, it's quite recently, as you discussed about the, the, you know, the end of the Cold War, yes. um, it's quite recently that, that the mariners involved got medals. Quite right, yes. Um, yeah. so, so now is the time to be talking about it in that sense. It, 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 it is, and uh, I, I think that is a, rec- a recognition of, um, of the obscurity into which this campaign was cast by the vagaries of history, by the fact that our, um, our allies during the war rapidly became our enemies in the peace that followed. Um, and that meant that this campaign didn't receive the recognition that it deserved, um, and now is an extremely important uh, point to, to, to put that right and to, to recognise not just a military contribution but a cultural contribution as well, um, how, how these events have been remembered um, and how they've uh, permeated various areas of, of, fiction, of literature, for instance, um, and of art. And, and we have marvellous um, examples of uh, war artists' work during the war too. Have you had any input from surviving veterans? There, 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 ha- there has been, yes, and I think it's, um, it's, it's certainly important to, uh, to, to have those voices. Um, and what we're also very pleased to be able to do uh, is to combine that with actual objects, uh, like uniform, uh, like, like mittens that were worn to protect sailors uh, from the biting cold of, of the Arctic, uh, duffel coat that they wore, um, and extraordinary photographs as well um, that actually propel us back in time and ask us to confront a situation and, um, and a way of living that is beyond comprehension for most people now. The, the, you, you talked about the photos, and, and I've seen some of these photographs, and, yes. and they are remarkable, and, and they give... Um, they're, they're surprisingly good quality in the sense. What struck me is, who's taking these photos? I'm not, I, I don't know the, the particular... Um, the, the actual official photographers' um, names, and, and I'm not sure we will ever know. Um, but they, they do give us a sense not only of... Um, of the official uh, war record of the Arctic convoys, the sense of, of sort of fighting and, um, and, and uh, the appearance of, um, of conflict and battles, but they also give us a very personal dimension too, uh, that you have scenes of, of, uh, of, of rescued survivors. Uh, you also have a photograph of, um, of the ship's cat from um, HMS Duke of York, a, a, a battleship involved in, uh, in, in, the, in the Arctic um, sphere, um, which I, I think really br- brings home the, the realities of, of, of the mess deck um, and the realities of everyday life. Apparently, um, during the 
the Battle of North Cape, where this battleship, HMS Duke of York, fought and, and sunk the Scharnhorst. This cat is reputed to have um, snoozed happily um, and uh, was not uh, sort of roused until after um, hostilities had ceased, but perhaps that's a, a myth. You've got, you've got one lovely photo of, uh, of, of some sailors uh, on deck wearing all, the, all their duffel coats and such like, yes. and, and, uh, and, and uh, the, the point is that they've got um, massively thick socks and they have to wear <laughs> yes. boots that are two sizes too large to fit the socks on. Um, I mean, that's, that's quite, a, quite an astonishing little fact to focus in on, and there's a sense of how difficult it must have been for these men to do anything on board ship when they were wearing so much stuff. Extremely, and, and, and Imagine trying to chip ice off a deck or, or use a steam hose to clean, clean to, to, to remove ice from uh, some piece of machinery. Um, if you took your if you if you took your mittens off, if you touched metal with your bare hands um, uh, up up in the Arctic during one of these convoys, you, you were likely to lose the flesh on your hands. It, it was absolutely appallingly cold, but. Um, we also have an object uh, which is called the uh, Certificate of the Blue Nose, uh, which was presented um, unofficially uh, to sailors in this theatre uh, to indicate that they'd actually uh, passed into the Arctic Ocean, that they were now experienced in Arctic seas. Um, it was a, a sort of crossing of the line equivalent ceremony um, that signed by King Neptune. Okay. Um, is, is there any one particular object or, or artefact or, or document that you're particularly excited about being able to show to the public? Well, I, th I think I'd, I'd have to go with personal ones. For me, it, it's actually the mittens and the uniform uh, and, and the duffel coat. Um, I, I just think they, they bring you very close to, uh, to the actual experiences of, of life on, on these convoys. And I'd put next to that, actually, a, a painting that uh, will be in the exhibition by a war artist called William Dring. Uh, that shows a, a, a lieutenant commander uh, called Harry Hall uh, in all of his sort of Arctic kit, just sort of wrapped up to the, to the neck. Uh, and it's believed that it was painted in 1942 when he was on board a, uh, an escort vessel uh, which was allocated to a convoy called PQ-17, uh, which was um, a disastrous convoy in which um, only 11, I think, out of 35 vessels came through and the rest were sunk. So uh, that, for me, is a, is, is a particularly memorable painting. OK, last question. Um, in, in your research for, for, for putting together this exhibition, uh, have, has your knowledge been in any way advanced about this? Have we learned anything particularly new or trenchant about the story of the Arctic convoys? I think, I think perhaps what we've learned is that no one really understands the Arctic convoys properly apart from those who took part in them. Um, it's easy to say that this is just a, a process of uncovering for, for historians, but um, it, it isn't actually possible ultimately to, to recreate uh, the experiences of, of a past like this. We hope to open that up to people to give them some points of reference to make something that is perhaps very distant and very incomprehensible a bit more real. Um, but we, we know that that's not ultimately uh, within our gift. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. 
ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. Arctic Convoys 1941-45 to is on at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich now and until 28 February 2012. Go to nmm.ac.uk for more information and have a look at our website, historyextra.com forward slash convoy, where you can see a slideshow gallery of convoy images, including some of the photographs that we discussed in the interview. Of course, on the wartime theme, it's Remembrance Sunday this weekend and UK listeners can watch coverage of events from the Cenotaph on BBC One on Sunday morning. I'll also be watching the Time Watch documentary on wartime double agent Eddie Chapman on BBC Two on Tuesday, 15 November at 9pm. I might even tweet about it as well. Now we have a short advertisement. Discover a unique treasure trove of medieval and Renaissance manuscripts assembled by English kings and queens between the 9th and 16th centuries. See these treasures for yourself in the British Library's exhibition Royal Manuscripts, The Genius of Illumination, which runs until the 13th of March 2012. These manuscripts are now our best surviving link to this lost world, and the exhibition features stunning examples which are works of art in their own right, and as a collection, unlock the secrets of the private lives and public personae of the royals throughout the Middle Ages. Highlights include the Book of Hours, made for Margaret Beauchamp, who was a great-grandmother of Henry VIII, the Shrewsbury Book, a wedding gift for Margaret of Anjou and Henry VI in 1445, and Henry VIII's velvet-bound psalter. For more information and to book tickets, visit the British Library website www.bl.uk forward slash royal. Next up, Professor Stephen Rippon is a landscape historian at the University of Exeter. One of his projects is an exploration of the wetland environment of the South Essex marshes. I asked him a little more about the project, and the first question I put to him was, why do the South Essex marshes matter? Well, the South Essex Marshes is a, an area of about 1,500 hectares. Um, in southern Essex, the, the largest area that's best known is, is Canvey Island. And it's within an area uh, east of London that's been identified as part of what's called the Thames Gateway Initiative, which is a big urban regeneration initiative. 
and the uh, Royal Society of Protection of Birds are trying to create a, a new nature reserve which obviously is trying to enhance the nature conservation interest of the area but also increase public access to the countryside. Okay, and why is this place archaeologically interesting? Why uh, is a man like you uh, investigating this place? Um, well, most British sort of wetlands were reclaimed in the medieval period. So a seawall, an embankment was built along the coast and a network of ditches were, were, were dug to drain the landscape and use it quite intensively for arable farming. What's interesting about the South Essex marshes is that over the course of the medieval period, they weren't reclaimed and they were just left as a sort of a natural salt marsh environment where they were grazed by sheep. And the reclamation actually came much, much later. And so this is a wonderfully well-preserved sort of traditional grazing marsh that hasn't really been destroyed by the ravages of modern farming, modern urban and industrial development. Okay, so why were medieval people interested in winning land from the sea and how successful were they in, in getting it back, particularly in the South Essex marshes? In the medieval period, um, the economy was driven by agriculture. It was some industry, but we were essentially an agricultural society. And so reclamation was one way of increasing the agricultural productivity of land. Um, a salt marsh, in other words, wetlands in their natural state, can't really be used for growing crops. And if you do have livestock on them, they're vulnerable to loss through freak floods. If you construct an embankment, if you then drain the land, you stop the salt water from contaminating the soils, and you can very productively grow crops like arable, arable crops like wheat and barley. And you can sell them at a market and you can make a profit. So around most of Britain, that was the way that medieval communities used wetlands. The issue in the South Essex marshes, and the reason why in the medieval period there was very little reclamation, was that uh, the South Essex marshes are very close to London, which provided an enormous market for fresh dairy produce like butter and cheese and milk. So what landowners seemed to have worked out was that they could leave the marshes unreclaimed, they could graze their livestock, make dairy produce and sell it in London for profit. And that profit was higher than they would have achieved through embanking the land and then just growing arable crops. OK, so have you been able to find much evidence for, for what medieval people were doing in the South Essex marshes then if... If, if, as you're saying, it's a sheep presumably fairly ephemeral, the evidence for, for grazing animals? Um, I mean, some of the most interesting evidence is actually in the place names, in that even today, uh, in the South Essex marshes, there's a series of places that are called Wick. And the place name Wick, in the context of coastal marshes, refers to small, often raised areas where there would have been maybe a shepherd's hut uh, and a place that they would have uh, milked the livestock. Uh, so it's like small little dairies. And uh, these wicks uh, were then retained following reclamation in the post-medieval period as the sites of farms. So if you look on old maps of the area, um, most of the farms are actually called wicks, which actually, if you like, harks back to the pre-reclamation period when these salt marshes were just grazed by primarily sheep that would have been milked at these small dairies 
which were the wicks. Okay, so you can really make use of the place name evidence to, to, to construct that medieval landscape. Yeah, yeah. Um, there comes a time when the marshes were properly worn back from the sea, though. When, when does that happen? How does that um, venture take place? The large-scale reclamation was actually as late as the early 17th century, when there was great agricultural prosperity in Britain, there was great investment in, in land. And what we see is that local landowners uh, came together uh, and they actually paid some Dutch engineers to embank a lot of the marshes. And the work we've done has actually been able to identify a very distinctive form of seawall, which we're fairly certain are survivals from this early 17th century uh, Dutch embankment. And quite a, a number of these Dutch seawalls still actually survive today. Some of them have got public footpaths along them, so you can actually still go and visit them today. It's curious, this sort of the Anglo-Dutch connection there. Presumably people were interested in, in Dutch engineers because in, 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 in the Low Countries they had a lot of similar problems. And were they, were they better at draining land in, in Holland and in, in the Low Countries than, than over here in England and Britain? Um, yes. I mean, the people in the Low Countries um, were very skilled at water engineering, but they were also actually very entrepreneurial. And uh, even if you go back into the medieval period, there were actually uh, Dutchmen and Flemings, who it's well documented, were colonisers of new land, both in mainland Europe and, and for example, in Pembrokeshire in the 12th century when the, the Normans invaded Wales, it's documented that they actually brought people from the Low Countries to help colonise the newly conquered land. So people from the Low Country have a long history, actually, of being both uh, very entrepreneurial, but also very, very skilled engineers. OK. So how successful were those later Dutch-led um, embankments then? Did they, are they what we still have now? Is that, is that the extent of the reclamation? Um, it looks like most of the marshes were reclaimed by the Dutch, but in some places, and particularly facing onto the Thames estuary, if you look at the seawalls, they're actually very different in their character to what we think are the Dutch seawalls that survive. And also we can see by analysing the landscape that these seawalls along the, the, uh, in the, the banks of the Thames are actually superimposed upon earlier fields. And it's very clear that these seawalls have been set back to their present location and that the seawalls used to be further out into what is now the Thames estuary. In other words, they've been set back to their present location, we think, in the late 18th and the early 19th centuries. So what's going on? Why would that have happened? Um, it's almost certainly to do with environmental change, um, rising sea levels, and also perhaps changing tidal conditions that are leading to erosion. Thames estuary is getting wider and wider over time. And this means that the, the sea walls are being undermined, and rather than trying to maintain seawalls in their present location, people have decided, look, let's give up, let's simply move the seawall further inland, which means that hundreds of square metres of land have actually been lost. So that's interesting because there's, there's clearly a modern parallel with that in, the, in what's happening today. There's, there's, a, there's often a policy of, of letting the sea win back 
and 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 coastal coastal erosion happen. So have we got a, a precedent for for that policy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a wonderful example of how. Studying the past means that you can actually understand how human communities have interacted with the environment. And what we see is that solutions that we're adopting today, like managed retreat of seawalls, is not new. It's actually a very natural uh, response to environmental change. And it shows that we're working with nature rather than fighting against nature. And it might be that within a hundred years conditions have changed and salt marshes are actually starting to form again in front of our sea walls so it's quite a sort of a cyclical process but i just think it reflects how sort of modern engineers are actually following historical patterns and doing something that's actually quite natural now you were telling me before we, we start our interview that there's there's some interesting uh, connections between these lowland wetland areas and and the upland communities can you, can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, the, um, the historical record shows that um, areas of these marshes weren't occupied by a single parish, but they used to be divided up into relatively small parcels that belonged to parishes in adjacent and, and sometimes quite distant areas of southern Essex. Now... From my perspective as a a landscape historian, that's very interesting in that it suggests that the marshes used to be a large area of common land in which all the neighbouring communities could take their livestock in the summer to graze them on the marshes. So the marshes didn't used to belong to any one community. Um, They were a large area of common. But over time, as population was increasing, there was a desire to define property rights And so what we see is that inland parishes had little detached parcels down on the marshes. So historically, that's very interesting. When I was doing my research with the RSPB and making presentations to various other planners and countryside managers, they were really interested in this, partly because of the history of the landscape, but also as a way of promoting the nature reserve to often quite distant communities, some of which now are are largely urban, and and using this as a way of saying to these communities, look, come and visit the nature reserve, because your communities used to own this land back in the medieval period. And communities living where you are now used to drive their livestock, their flocks of sheep, down lanes that you can still walk down onto the marshes. So what we're hoping is sort of using our historical understanding of the landscape to actually promote um, increased public engagement and access to the countryside. Do you think it'll work? Do you you see droves of people from Basildon charging down to their former chunk of land in the marshes? Well, we hope so. Um, The uh, current RSPB reserves... Um, and there's also a country park, gets over 100,000 visitors. And as the RSPB develop their reserves in the area, they're hoping for maybe 300,000 visitors. A lot of these will be going there to see uh, the natural heritage of of the area, most obviously the very, very rich bird life. But what we're hoping is that people will also be interested in the remarkable history of the landscape, and in particular this really well-preserved suite of historical features like these wonderful 17th century Dutch sea walls. 
Stephen Rippon is an archaeologist at the University of Exeter. His research project on the marshes was funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. That's all for this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Next time we'll be hearing from some Second World War veterans. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by the remarkable Dave Gibson. Dave Gibson.